This evening's readings are taken firstly from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, and that's on page 971 of the Pew Bibles. Page 971. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then moving to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And the second reading is taken from Haggai, chapter 1, which is on page 948, beginning at the first verse, page 948. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you have brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. 
Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Thanks, Alice, very much indeed. And do keep that second reading, Haggai, open. We're going to be spending the next 25 minutes or so there. And if you, if you lose it, you'll never find it again. Let me tell you. It's page 948. Three bow our heads to pray for God's help. Lord and Father, I'm very aware that I'm a sinful man of unclean lips and I'm about to speak on your behalf and handle your words so I pray for your grace towards me as I do that and I pray for your grace for the rest of us as we listen that you'd give us soft hearts and an ability to listen even where the message perhaps is hard to hear for Jesus namesake amen Imagine in your mind's eye a child, a daughter, and her father. She loves her father. Of course she does. He's her father, and she wants to please him today. Her father's apple, the apple of his, her father's eye is, is, is his wife, his bride. He loves her. He'll do anything for her. He loves her to bits. One day, imagine the father catches sight of the daughter out in the garden. It's spring. There are flowers beginning to come up. And very sweetly, she's picking a little posy of flowers, a gift for somebody. And he's wondering, I wonder if they're for me. And she picks them. And he listens carefully. He's smiling in anticipation. And those little footsteps pad past his study door. She ignores him, and she goes straight to his bride, his wife, her mother, and hands them to her. How will the father respond? He beams from ear to ear. He loves it. The daughter knows how to love him well, because as she loves his bride well, she loves him well, because he's in love with his wife, his bride. We'll come back to that later. Question. What or whom does God love most in the world? What or whom does God love most in the world? It's a very good question, I think, not least because I ask it. But also because if we pretend to love God, then surely we'll want to join him in his love, in his enterprise. We'll want to join him in his passion. Question, what or whom does God love in the world? Answer, he loves the church the church, capital C, the church, the worldwide people of God, not a building, but a people. They are his full-time occupation, 
his passion, his obsession, his love, they are not an it. We are not an it. We're a she. We are his bride, the church. She is the beneficiary of all of his promises. So that one day, if you remember the church, we will make a galaxy look sparsely populated with stars. So that if you're a member of this capital C church worldwide, we'll receive every blessing that God has going. So that he says of us, you're mine, you're my people, with all of the protective jealousy that that strongly implies. And so that we can say of him, you're mine, you're my God. And it's, it's not blasphemy when we say that, it's belonging. It's belonging to the people of God, the worldwide church. We're a people who are meant to have such a depth of mutual affection, such truth-soaked integrity, such love, that we could be called Christ's body on earth, God's household, little outreach, outhouse of it here in Chester Square. A people where the the broken can be mended and made new. And where the lost can find out who it is who can find them. And where the purposeless can discover the person in whom there is real truth and purpose. It's a place where diversity is welcomed. We have open doors, no selection criteria. Diversity welcomed as we worship the one throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for us. We remembered that last week, Easter time. He's currently feeding us, cleansing us, sustaining us, and even by his spirit, he's walking amongst us. We are God's bride, his passion, and his love. If we ask what or whom God loves most in the world, the answer is the church us, the people of God. And the burden of this passage here, Haggai chapter 1, is to say, if we want to love God, surely we'll join him in that passion. Surely we'll make his obsession our obsession. Surely we'll love his bride, the church. The way to love him is to love her. And it'll mean more according to Haggai 1, than a bunch of flowers picked in springtime. In fact, Haggai 1 is very clear that it will affect almost everything we own and all that we are. Indeed, even it will affect the very houses we live in and the decor we have in those houses. But there's a problem, and it's my first point if you're taking notes. It's this. Procrastination and the wrong priorities. Procrastination and the wrong priorities, verses 4 to 6, if you have got Haggai 1 in front of you. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says, These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. They say, good idea, but later. Could we not do it later? My diary is so full. Let's delay, let's just procrastinate a bit. 
The tiny book of Haggai was first communicated around 520 BC at a time when the people of Israel had been coming back to the promised land out of the Babylonian exile for a little while. They'd been trickling back. And the rebuilding work of the temple, which had been destroyed, had begun to take place. And the builders had been there, the foundation had been laid, maybe the first few layers of the brickwork. You can read about that in Ezra, chapters 1 to 2. But the problem was something had delayed the work. And it wasn't a, uh, an election about to take place and worries about tax implications and profit margins. It was just downright opposition. And uh, they'd got disheartened and they'd stopped building the temple. And God speaks through Haggai here in this book very clearly indeed to say, why have you stopped? It gives me great pleasure when you rebuild my temple, my house. Why have you stopped? In verse 4 in our passage, we find that the temple was still in ruins, not befitting of the living God of the universe at all. And that was important because the temple in the Old Covenant towards the beginning of our Bibles in the Old Testament, that was the place where God's focused, symbolic presence dwelt. So powerfully that you had to be very careful walking into the Holy of Holies, one person a year. And therefore, the state in which that building was kept was indicative of the esteem in which God's people were holding God. Very important indeed. Some of us all know um, Freya Collis. She's an undergrad, and she comes to the morning service and helps out with the children's work. She's an undergrad at uh, Reading University. Now, imagine if Freya's parents, while she was away during term time, let her room completely go. It's pretty hard to let that happen because term times are so short. But imagine the posters fall off the walls. Imagine they maintain the roof of the rest of the house, but there's a leak, then a tile comes off, then a gushing flow in her room, and they think, well, it's only Freya, isn't it? Poor girl. The problem with that is it's not just a real estate problem. You've got a room in your house that's damaged. It's a personal problem. Don't you love your daughter? It's her room. And God here through Haggai is saying, don't you love me? Why are you leaving my room, my house, verse 4, in ruins? Do you see, it's a deeply theological and important architectural point. It's not just a building. It's his reputation. But the problem is the people had other priorities. Verses 5 to 6. Did you notice those verses as they were read by Alice? They'd become concerned for personal comfort and even luxury. And as is so often the case, I think, when those priorities take root in a culture... The home had taken center stage. The home had become the showpiece, the front window onto the rest of the world. Show kitchens, show bathrooms, and the rest of it. And the people had lived in exile, my guess is, for so long that they'd absorbed Babylonian culture and values. They'd absorbed London, 21st century culture and values, they'd begun to see that the Israelites' home really is his castle. They'd begun to see that the Isra- for the Israelite, home really is 
where the heart is. And if uh, we were to log on to their skybox, we'd find all sorts of things set to record uh, under the hammer, uh, grand designs. They watch them avidly. They'd been to the Ideal Homes show, wherever that is, in the Excel Center, and they'd loved it, felt a little crushed by the displays, but wanted to, uh, to, to do it in their own homes. And as they commuted past the ruins of the temple every day on their way working in the bank, their minds didn't even log the ruins of the temple. Their minds were full of questions like, oh, which work surfaces should I get? Would, I mean, would it be the marble or would it be the granite to go with the oak? They were so concerned about their own homes that they'd forgotten God's home and God's reputation. Now, applying Old Testament passages like this into our present day is a little bit like, I think, translating from one language into another. In as much as we want to contain and keep the real true meaning, nothing in that regard changes, but we need to use the vocabulary that the New Testament provides. So we need to do a bit of translation work, keep the main meaning, but translate it into our day and age. So you ready? We're going to do that with the concept temple. Okay? So if we fast forward to Jesus' day, we find the temple, after it was rebuilt, completely ruined, destroyed. It's a historical fact. And after that moment in time, there was no longer any sacred space in the world. There was no precious postcode that God said, yes, this is more precious than this place. No longer any of that. Because God's special focused presence was found not in a postcode, but in a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what John writes in John chapter 1? The Lord Jesus, the word, he tabernacled amongst us. He's saying he templed amongst us. He was the living, walking, talking, thinking, speaking temple, God. If we wanted to know what God was like and relate to him, we didn't go to a building, the temple. We went to him in Palestine as he wandered about. Do you remember the debates in the Gospels? He said, um, I'm going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they said, what are you talking about? Are you a terrorist? And we get those little explanatory editorial points. No, he was talking about his own body. You see, he is the temple, the focused presence of God on earth. Then he dies, temple destroyed, he's risen again from the dead, temple rebuilt, and then he ascends into heaven, gone. Not physically present in our world anymore. So where is the presence of God now? Well, he gives his wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? You'll remember that. But to whom does he give it, or where does he give his spirit? He doesn't give his spirit to a place, or a postcode, or a temple. God doesn't reside in that sense more powerfully here in a church building than anywhere else. He gives his Holy Spirit presence to a people. He gives him to the church, to his bride, to a people, to you and I, if we're found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that the Apostle Peter can talk about us in terms of us being a temple. He writes this. We are living stones, each one of us a brick as we've come here. We're living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We are the temple of the living God now, corporately. So we've done the translation work. When we read in the Old Testament, rebuild the temple, 
What we need to understand it to mean for us in our lives today is rebuild the church. And it's not construction work, bricks and mortar. It's HR. It's human resources. It's people. Rebuild the people of God. Rebuild us. Grow us in discipleship and in number. And Jesus says that, doesn't he, in our New Testament reading. Please seek first my kingdom and righteousness. That's your real priority. Don't forget my church. Don't leave my church in ruins. So that's the problem, procrastination, wrong priorities. What's the solution? The solution, firstly, it is, in a word, ponder. Ponder. Have a think. Verses 5 and 7. Did you notice verses 5 and 7 are identical? And I take it that that means they're important. Repetition is important as far as teaching goes. Let me read it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. In other words, he says, take a step back and think. Careful thought. Think about your actions, my actions, and their consequences. Give careful thought. It's not the kind of thing that we can rush. He says, you'll need a cup of tea and at least an hour and a beard if you can find one to stroke. It's a really thoughtful thing. He's saying, give careful thought. He's not asking for a knee-jerk, intuitive response. He's asking for percolated, oak-barrel-aged decision-making. He's asking for deliberation. Give careful thought to your ways. Slow down and think. And then like a gentle management consultant, if that's not a contradiction in terms, the Lord stoops down to our level and looks at how we're behaving and the consequences. And he says, do you like the equation? Let me read verse 6. He says, I've noticed you've planted much, invested a lot of money in your stocks and shares, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, and don't you love this? Only to put them in a purse with holes in it? Did you see what he's saying? Their aim was comfort and luxury. They've been breaking their backs, working extraordinary hours, maybe in the city, burning the candle at both ends. Why? Well, to afford the lifestyles they were pursuing. The Ocado delivery takes its toll every week, and of course the Bowdoin mail orders do. And of course we want to put a bit by for our pension plan, and then we've got to invest in property at some stage, maybe our own, there's a mortgage payments to pay. And they were shattered. But the more they worked, the slimmer the returns were that they were experiencing. And the Lord comes down to their level, the management consultant Lord, and he says... You happy with that? You're putting a great deal in. You're not really harvesting much. Have you thought about why that might be? It's like the Lord is watching a fool trying to ship water from a stream using a sieve. He says, give careful thought to your ways. I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. He explains more in verse 9. This is important. You expected much. Invested in the stocks and shares, you imagine the great uh, down payment. But see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? 
because of my house, the temple, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Do you see God had intervened? We don't live in a closed universe. He'd intervened, and he had made the stocks and shares plummet. He had made the pension portfolio at the bottom fall out of it. He'd plugged holes into the purses of the people. He'd taken away the contentment the people had previously experienced with eating the lovely Ocado food and wearing the Bowdoin clothes. He'd done it, and he's unashamed about it. He'd intervened in a radical way. Why? It's not that those things in and of themselves are wrong. Katie and I have Ocado deliveries. The onion van often comes to deliver the food. It's a great thing. But it becomes wrong when we pursue these things as ultimate things, as things, as we say, we couldn't do without. And that happens quite quickly, in my experience. It's idolatry. An idol, anything which doesn't finally satisfy us, anything, anyone, which, who, isn't God himself. Imagine the little daughter we began with. Imagine she doesn't pick a posy of flowers, but instead she makes her way to the the medicine cabinet, climbs up and grabs a shiny-looking bottle of medicine. Imagine her father sees her clutching it, saying, mine, about to try and unscrew the cap. What will he do? Won't he start to get stern with her in love? Won't he say, no, 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 darling, put it down. No, really, put it down. And if she doesn't put it down, what will he do next? Won't he gently but forcefully prise those little fingers off that medicine? Because he knows it's not good for her. It won't bring satisfaction. It's not right for her. And I'm so slow to learn this, but the living Lord of the universe, the Lord Almighty of Haggai 1, does exactly the same with you and I. If we start to make an idol of comfort, he sometimes intervenes and makes comfort impossible for us to find, like trying to catch pigeons in Trafalgar Square. We can't do it. If we make an idol of family harmony, sometimes he brings a season of Family arguments again and again and again. Make an idol of getting on the property market. Sometimes he makes the money we have plummet. He will not share his glory with another, do you see? He does it out of love. He prizes our hands off idols like homes and comforts that we could see as ultimate things. And he says, no, I want you to worship me first. Did you notice the giveaway mark of idolatry here? I found it fascinating. It wasn't that these people just loved their homes. Homes are good things, great things to celebrate, fine to love them. But it's a relative thing. He says, do you love your homes more than my house? In today's language, he would say, do you love X or Y more than my bride, the church? Do you? Where do your resources go? New kitchen? Or to the persecuted church in Syria? Where, where do they go? Part one of the solution, there we go, ponder. Give careful thought. Part two of the solution, another P, please the Lord. Verse eight, please the Lord. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build the temple so that I may take pleasure in it. 
and be honored, says the Lord. I wonder if uh, you, you know unpredictable people, do you? You might be married to one. Unpredictable people are quite hard to please, aren't they? When it comes to their birthday, we're left scratching our heads thinking, I have no idea what he or she wants. No idea. Last year he was into this, but I've just... It's a guessing game. It's horrible. Normally get it wrong. That's where the Amazon voucher comes in, in the marketplace, right? But the Lord is not an unpredictable person. He's very clear with us as to what gives him pleasure. And he's not playing games with these people in Haggai 1. He says, I'll tell you what I want for my birthday. It's the rebuilding of my house. That will give me deep pleasure. He's very easy to please in that sense. He'd love that. It's a way of him saying, seek first my kingdom. Put my bride first, my church first. Don't worry about all those other things. They'll be given to you says Jesus in Matthew 6. Put me first, I'd love that. Now before we go any further, I feel I've got to dispel some misunderstandings about what it means to prioritize the church. Okay? It does not mean becoming churchy. There's nothing wrong with um, stained glass and organ music and hymnodies and, and quiche and polystyrene cups and There's nothing wrong with church, Enos, but prioritizing the church doesn't mean we have to love those things. It's about the Lord and his kingdom. It doesn't mean we all need to go off and start to wear one of these and get ordained. That's a relief to some people. It'll mean that for some. That'll be right if we care about the church and prioritize his bride. But not all. What it means is, if you imagine a pie chart of all the things we have at our disposal, time, energy, relationships, money, it means assigning the first and the best of what we have to the church. That's it. doesn't mean we won't have enough to live on or enough to have a roof over our heads, but are we giving the first and the best of what we have to the church? That's the question. It's a hard ask, isn't it? Especially in our culture, which prioritizes the home. I want to have a grand home to to impress people as they come round. I do. I want to drive a Mercedes like the rental car I had last week. I want to do that. I love those things. And it's kind of hard to to cut against the grain of culture and to, to start to divert funds and energy and time. It's tiring to the church. Our culture won't understand that. But we're called to be radical. That's fine. I remember hearing this chapter Haggai 1 preached on at our last church a number of years ago, and I remember it clearly for one reason. And the reason is that Katie and I were in the middle of renovating our house in Oxford at the time. Imagine our horror as we heard the reading. You know, you're looking after your houses, panelled, wooden panelling. It's a hard thing to listen to. But it made us ask some really good questions of ourselves. It made us say... Um, Do we love our home that we're renovating more than we love you guys, the church? That's one question. Will we use our home for the church? House is a great resource to use for the body of Christ. Is our financial giving to the church taking a hit because I'm spending all my money on banisters and wooden flooring? 
it made us ask some difficult questions, but some good questions. It's a hard ask, Haggai 1, isn't it? And we need help to obey it. God provides help in spades. It's my last point. Be provoked by God's promise. Be provoked by God's promise, verses 13 to 14. Did you notice as Alice read it, what finally triggers the change in God's people here? We have to wait almost to the very end of the chapter until we read the words, the people came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, verse 14. They actually did it. They phoned up the contractor and said, look, you're really good at the wooden paneling, but can we just delay Maybe even cancel the order. I've got some other priorities just come in. They actually changed. And what was it that the Lord said that made such a difference? He says something in verse 13 that is Prozac and an energy drink and a New Year's resolution all rolled into one and it changes how they live. Did you spot what it is? Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people Build my temple for goodness sake. I'm going to count to ten. No. He says some of the most precious and repeated words you'll find throughout the whole Bible. He says, for I am with you. For I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of all the people and they began work on the temple. And that would get you working on rebuilding the temple, wouldn't it? My parents are here this evening. But I remember as a child being asked by mum and dad to do things that I found quite scary. made me, frankly, quite nervous. John, could you just go and... And my response to that was normally to dig my heels in and say no or protest or show my fear. I'll tell you what the real game changer in that kind of situation as a child was. And I wrote the sermon before dad came, so it's not trying to suck up. The real game changer is when mum or dad said, don't worry, John, I'll come with you. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. I knew then that I'd do it and I'd take joy in it and I'd know peace in doing that previously difficult task because one of them was coming and they were so capable, were. (laughs) And they brought with them experience and wallets and knowledge of how the world works, and it would be fine. I'll come with you, John. It's a game changer. You can trace that phrase all the way through the Old Testament and the New. And at every point through the Bible narrative, where there are people who are nervous to follow through on what God has asked them to do, God restates that promise. He says, I'm with you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through. Do you remember the end of Matthew's gospel? Go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptize in the name of the Father. That's scary. And behold, I'm with you. Till the end of the age, I'm with you. So it might be on the back of a sermon like this. One of us decides, yeah, you know, I am actually going to, I've got a bit of time I could give to church. Maybe I'll see if um, St. Michael's needs someone to help with teaching the children on a Sunday morning. And we gulp as we say it. We think, what am I saying? It's a costly time investment. It means praying for the group. It means preparing in advance. It means coming to church twice because you want to hear a sermon in the evening. What does the Lord say to you as you seek to love his bride well? 
He says, I'm with you. I'm with you. It may be that someone here decides, you know, I'm really going to invest in that really difficult person at church, the person I find really draining. And let's be honest, there are quite a few of us here. I'm not just going to chat to them quickly over coffee on a Sunday. I'm going to really even meet with them midweek. And we gulp as we say it. What am I saying? We're trying to love the Lord's bride well because we love him. And what does the Lord say to you? He says, I'm with you as you do that. It, maybe it's the financial thing. Maybe you are renovating a house. And you think, yeah, I could get that kitchen, but I could also divert some of the resources to the church. Scary. Loving the Lord well by loving his bride well. What does the Lord say to you? He says, I'm with you. As you do that costly thing, I'm with you. Should we bow our heads and pray? A moment of quiet. Heavenly Father, we need to make resolutions after hearing Haggai 1. And I pray that we would do just that. Would we honor you with how we've heard that sermon and that passage? For your namesake. Amen.